Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week and next, my guest is Sean Ryan. Now, Sean created my all-time favorite cop show, The Shield. He also created the highly underrated Terriers and was on The Unit. He uh, ran that show with David Mamet. Oh, we have a lot to talk about. Currently, he is the showrunner on SWAT, and he is one of my all-time favorite writers. So I am thrilled that this week and next week, I get a chance to introduce you to Sean Ryan. Well, I first met you at a S.H.I.E.L.D. premiere party, like season three or four, and... The Shield is, to this day, it's my favorite all-time cop show. And I came up to meet you, and I was just a geeky fanboy. And I was shocked that you knew who I was Hmm. because of Cheers. And you said you always wanted to write a Cheers. Well, in fact, the very first TV script I wrote was a Cheers script. But, uh, yeah, I grew up, uh, you know, I was born in 1966. And so I came of age in TV when the sitcom was the dominant form of of television. You know, I think so many of the shows, uh, including MASH, which which obviously you wrote on, and Mary Tyler Moore Show, and All in the Family, and uh, um, WKRP in Cincinnati. You know, I can just go on and on. All these shows from the 70s and early 80s were so seminal for me uh, that... Uh, yeah, I, of course I knew who you were. Uh, and, and, and when I started watching Cheers, I think, I think I read a review, like in TV Guide, back when families would still get TV Guide, uh, mailed to their house. And you always looked forward to the day that that would arrive in the mailbox. And I, I was one of those people that would pay attention to, like, what they said about the new fall shows. And, uh, I recall them writing some very nice things about Cheers. And I went out of my way to watch uh, that first episode, and I just thought it was spectacular. And I thought, oh, my God, what is this? And this is so good. And and I made sure to watch, you know, we didn't have a VCR in our house at that time. So uh, if I missed uh, a Thursday night, it was very disappointing. Uh, but I tried like hell not to miss uh, any Thursday nights. And about halfway through the season, I really, I remember myself asking the question, why is this show funnier and better than other shows on TV? And I I kind of landed in an epiphany moment on, well, the writing's better. The the jokes that they're having the actors say are are better. The stories are are better constructed. And and that's when I started paying attention um to the writing credits. Before that, I'd never really paid attention to all those names that would roll past at the beginning of an episode. Uh, and I always thought the endings of Cheers episodes, I thought, I thought the, the little sort of boom, the emphasis at the end, you know, they'd always get you with some good joke. Um, and then you'd see the Charles brothers, uh, listed and James Burroughs listed. Uh, and, and I just started paying attention to that. So, so when, when Ken Levine comes up and talks to me, I'm, I'm very aware of who you are. <laughs> so you were like 16 then did you always want to be a writer no okay. I even then I didn't want to be a writer I just like watching tv I, I wanted to be uh an athlete 
that was my focus. I did dabble in theater. Um, so I was certainly exposed to the arts, but, uh, you know, as a, I was a hockey goalie, uh, through the age of 14 on a travel team. Um, I was a, a very competitive soccer player. I ended up playing soccer in college. So hockey and soccer are my two sports, but I also was, uh, captain of my, uh, basketball team in high school. Um, I played competitive tennis. I was on uh, a diving team on a swim team for a couple of years. I would play racquetball. Um, I, I would do all sorts of sports and, and, and I was good enough at them that I could kind of fool myself to think there was some sort of future in them. <laughs> uh, and, and that future extended to college for soccer, but I, I was never going to be a pro athlete in, in any way. Um, so no, it wasn't a dream. I wasn't one of these people who knew from the age of four or five that, that I wanted to be a writer. Um, but I was a kid from the age of four or five who was just fascinated with television, even more so than film. Um, you know, movies weren't always so easy for me to see. Um, and growing up in Illinois, you know, you, you just get what, what, what was ever at the Metroplexes. Um, you know, you weren't getting a wide variety the way you might in New York or Los Angeles. So it was TV that really fascinated me. You'd, you'd watch repeats in the afternoons when you got home from school. You'd check out the new fall schedule when it, when it came on. Uh, and, uh, and then that morphed when I was in college, which is when I started writing plays. Um, and that's when it became a bit of a dream. And, and when I said I wrote my first cheer script, that was for a class that I had. I went to Middlebury College, which has a 414 program, meaning that you have a semester of classes. And then every January term, you just take one class for three and a half weeks. Um, and it's usually a little bit more of an offbeat class rather than a you know, hard academic class. And um, and there was uh, an alum of Middlebury's, a guy by the name of Paul Vaughn. Do you remember who Paul? Yeah, I don't know. Paul Vaughn was one of the guys who sat at the bar. That's right. And he mm-hmm. was actually from Boston. Uh, which he claimed uh, was one of the reasons why he got hired. He he lent a little uh, Boston authenticity uh, to the cast. Uh, he was the llama of Millbury, and he came to teach a television writing class. <clears throat> and so it, I, I didn't even have to think about it. I was like, oh, I'm going to write a cheer script. <laughs> and um, and Paul came and, and taught the class, and I just couldn't believe that I was in the same room with somebody who was like occasionally on the show. Uh, and I just asked him all sorts of questions about what it was like, you know, what the set was like, how the show ran. And then I, I, I wrote a cheer spec script that he was very complimentary about. Um, I'd written my first play by this point. So this was the second script of anything I'd ever written. And he was very encouraging. And, and that's when I thought, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could do this. Uh, and, uh, I ended up changing my major, quitting the soccer team, and uh, and focusing on theater and playwriting and TV writing at that point. You know, I became a writer because I wasn't a good athlete. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the only way to get women was <laughs> to be funny and to be a, a comedy writer. You know, a number of those bar patrons wrote spec scripts for Cheers. Oh really? Yeah. We're, we're and and <laughs> no, because the focus of the show was always on them. Okay. <laughs> they so they, did, like they didn't Alan. focus on Sam or Diane or Rebecca. Yeah, Alan had more lines than Sam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that's something I've learned on my various shows. And and listen, I'm married to an actress, and, and so I can appreciate it. You know, all actors, no matter how big or small their roles, you know, really tend to look at that universe from their character's perspective. And I love it that the actors can see how, you know, their role fits into the universe. But but um, they may have been better off from a writing perspective, giving Sam a little more focus than their character. Did you ever send the cheer spec anywhere? Did it get any traction? No, no, I, I didn't send anywhere. And then actually I wrote, when I moved out here to Los Angeles and started writing specs, I, so I won a, a comedy playwriting award uh, for best comedy play in the country through the American College Theater Festival. Best comedy in you know of a college produced play by a college student. Is that the um, Norman Lear prize that it you used won? To be, yes, it used to be called the Norman Lear uh, by the time I had won it, they had changed the title to the very unwieldy uh, Columbia uh, Columbia Pictures Television Comedy Playwriting Award or something like that. And I learned who some of the previous winners were. And I learned that one of the winners was this guy by the name of Fief Sutton, who, uh, who of course, I recognized from the Cheers credits of, along with everyone else. And I, and when I first moved out here in 1990, I, I mustered up the courage and somehow got an office number for Fief Sutton and left a message saying, hey, I'm the latest winner of this award. I heard that you uh, um, are a previous winner. If there's any way we could have a, a phone call and I could just ask you some questions, you know, I would be so appreciative. And he contacted me back and, and we ended up having a phone call. And he was the very first professional TV writer I ever spoke to um, along the way. And he was extraordinarily uh, nice considering. Yeah, he know, is extraordinary. extraordinary considering he was nice. yeah. busy making uh, that show and writing on that show. And he took probably 45 minutes to talk with me. Um, and then cut to years later, he came and and, and worked with us and wrote with us on terriers mm-hmm. you know, that had uh you know a lot of comedic elements and and so that that came full circle i was able to hire a cheers writer uh at some point to to work with me so when you came out here you originally wanted to be a sitcom writer well i thought that's what i was supposed to be um when you win a comedy playwright award and part of the award is to spend two weeks in the writer's room of a of a network sitcom in this case nbc's my two dads um yeah i thought i was supposed to be a sitcom writer um i i they had a staff of like seven or eight people who i met um one of the writers on that staff was chuck laurie so chuck was one of the very first people i met in los angeles yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, because I moved out here on December 31st, 1989. So I spent one day of the 80s in Los Angeles. I've never <laughs> been to Los Angeles before. Um, and then I think uh, you can go back and look at the calendar. Whatever that first Monday was, it was either January 2nd or January 3rd. That's when my two weeks in the writer's room started. And I got to see a couple of episodes. And I got to see them write. And I got to go down to set and see the rehearsals. And I got to see the tape nights uh and everything and so yeah i thought i was supposed to be and i ended up selling a story uh to them bob meyer was the showrunner at that point and when my two weeks were up i knew that they were kind of shy a couple of stories for the rest of the season i said hey would it be possible for me to come in uh and pitch you some ideas and and once again you know somebody was just extraordinarily nice beyond the point that they needed to be and he said sure and i came in a couple weeks later and i pitched a few ideas 
And the ideas that I had worked out in great detail, he rightfully rejected. And I was sort of at the end, I was about to say, well, thanks for giving me the chance. I said, well, I have this one idea. I haven't really had time to flesh it out. I just pitched this one-liner idea. And he was like, well, that's interesting. He spent about five minutes talking about, what, well, we could do this. We could do... And I realized by the end that I'd sold this idea that really he had come up with <laughs> based on this one-liner <laughs> I had said. So my very first TV credit is a story by credit that he had a couple of the staff writers on, on the show. I was going to say, they didn't let you write it? award-winning writer well yeah well, well uh no listen i totally understood what what happened and it was such a uh i can i can point to so many moments that were were uh moments of good fortune for me in my career um they were doing this whole storyline where you know the two leads of that show um were paul riser and greg evigan and they had a they had a storyline where there was gonna be a love uh interest introduced i think it was for the paul riser character um, and that was a, it was going to be a recurring role for like three or four episodes. And they were having difficulty casting it. And so all of a sudden they were like, well, we're supposed to film this episode in a week and a half, but we still don't have the woman we want. Bob bought this idea and was like, uh, I'm just going to hand this to some of our writers because we need to film this like in 10 days. So literally they were filming the episode uh, with the one liner I had pitched like 10 days after I pitched it. So there was no time to give right. me any chance to, to, you know, I, I was a rank amateur at that point. Um, but, but they, but they allowed me to come back all of a sudden there was a parking spot on the sunset gower lot with my name stenciled on it for about two additional weeks. And they let me come to the rehearsals for that and watch the tape night and, 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 and so that was pretty extraordinary. So when that happened, I thought, yeah, I'm supposed to be a comedy writer. And I was writing off comedy scripts. And what I ultimately found out was, uh, I think I could have been an upper level comedy writer. Uh, cause I had a good sense of, of comedy story, but I just wasn't a hard joke writer. And, and what I realized was that's what they wanted in their lower level writers. They wanted people who could just be you know, funny on command, who could come up with the hard jokes. And so I couldn't really get my foot in the door and I couldn't get that first staff job because I think my scripts and I guess me in real life, you know, was humorous, but just not hard, funny enough at that time. And then I also realized that a lot of the TV I was watching were dramas. You know, I was watching LA law, uh, uh, Twin Peaks came out the first year I was in Los Angeles and really had a, a big effect. And so I started writing drama specs along with comedy specs and and almost went on this dual track of, okay, I'm trying to be a comedy writer, but I'm also trying to be a drama writer. And then I ultimately got my first staff job on a drama uh, uh, and I got hired off a comedy spec, a, a Larry Sanders show. <laughs> Is that right? That I had written. So so Ooh, was that Nash Bridges? Was that your first? Nash Bridges was my first staff job. Yeah. And and that was a that was a cop show, but it had a lot of comedic B stories and side elements to it. So they valued people that could sort of do the drama and the comedy. So so they read two scripts of mine, a, a Larry Sanders show and then also at NYPD Blue. Um at, but I think it was the Larry Sanders one that that uh that they they really liked and 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 so so I'm glad I didn't give up on the comedy because the comedy script eventually landed me in a in a drama uh, writer's room and sort of set me off on that path for my career. Then you did Angel. Yeah, I did three years of Nash Bridges, and I wrote or co-wrote eleven episodes of the show, 
Uh, and there was a real formula to that show that that I I wouldn't say I got bored because it was always exciting to actually be working on a TV show. Uh, but I certainly felt myself constrained as a writer, and they wanted me to come back for um, for what turned out to be the final season, the sixth season of the show. It would have been my fourth season, but but I got an offer to go on Angel, and I thought, well, it's less security here. Um, and they don't know me and like me the way that Carlton Cuse and John Worth like me at Nash, and it's less money, but it feels like an opportunity to to learn something that I haven't learned at Nash. And so I kind of took a leap and I jumped onto Angel. Now, between those things, right near the end of Nash going into Angel, um, I'd been hired to write a, a sitcom pilot by Fox TV Studios. Um, and eventually that uh, that deal became the shield pilot. I did not write a sitcom for them. I wrote the <laughs> shield pilot instead. And so, uh, so yeah, I did angel, but, but during my, my, my one year run at angel, the shield script was, um, was kind of getting out there in the world uh, and, and drew the attention of, of FX and, and, and I learned that they wanted to make a pilot. So I, I only ended up working for one year on angel. Um, but, but it was a, it was a great year it was a little out of my comfort zone, which turned out to be a good thing um, because it made me stretch as a writer. And then, and then when the shield did get picked up, I, I had two examples to draw from. I had, you know, three years at Nash Bridges and a year at Angel because uh, Joss, Joss Whedon and David Greenwalt and Tim Minear ran things very differently on Angel than, than I was used to at Nash Bridges. And so it gave me a variety of perspective that I could draw from when I eventually went off to make the shield. Let's talk about the shield. What was the inspiration for that show? And it seems like you did an awful lot of research because it seemed to be the most authentic police show I've ever seen. Oh, well, you're very kind. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I always loved other cop shows. Uh, so there were a few inspirations. One is that I'd been a huge fan of Homicide Life on the Street. And by this point, the show was either at the end or it ended. I'd been a big fan of NYPD Blue, but David Milch had left the show. And, and, and I think some of the magic had, had left the show at that point. Um, I had been a big fan of Law and Order, but that was a, a formula show. And by that point, you know, we were eight, nine, 10 years into the formula. And I realized that there was no, for the first time in a long time, there was no cop show that I was looking forward to each week that I had to watch. And I thought, well, maybe I should write the show that I feel like I need to watch each week. And so, um, so that was one inspiration was just like looking at the landscape and saying, Hey, I want to, I want to watch, uh, a cop show that's different that I love and I don't see one on TV. So, so why don't I try to write one? Um, I, you could call it research. I, I just mostly call it reading. I, I was just always reading. I was reading uh, nonfiction books about law enforcement and serial killers and everything. I would always read back when we actually would get physical newspapers uh, dropped off at our doors in the mornings. I would, you know, I would read the LA Times every day and, and read stuff. And, and the Rampart scandal had broken and there were this constant avalanche of articles uh, as more and more information came out that I was always reading. 
Um, and then the other inspiration was an incident that happened uh, for Nash Bridges, which was a show that filmed in San Francisco. They sent us up there to do some police ride-alongs in San Francisco. And it took me about 15 minutes on my very first police ride-along to realize, oh, this is there's going to be nothing from this we can use for Nash Bridges. Like, yeah. like this is... This is this is real. This is harrowing. This is, you know, feels inherently dangerous. You know, Nash never felt dangerous. You always knew that Don Johnson was going to end up fine at the end of the episode. You you always knew that the bad guys were going to get caught. Oh, there was this is a spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> there was a uh, cynicism that I noticed in real life that that felt protective. Like these people have to be cynical because the things they see are so difficult. Um, that I that I thought, well, I don't really see that level of cynicism uh, on TV. So that was interesting. So it was a combination of all these things. And then I would say that, you know, I talked about my sports background. One of the things, that, another thing that I felt I didn't see a lot of was what I call locker room culture. Um, you know, I'd spent my entire life, in you know, until my early 20s, in locker rooms around other alpha, well, I don't want to describe myself as an alpha male, but but when you play sports, you play sports at high level. There's a, you know, you're around a lot of alpha males. You're you're around a lot of testosterone. You're around a lot of, you know, joking and jockeying around and and everything. And I felt like I hadn't seen much of that on TV. Um, what I felt was true locker room. And so another inspiration, especially for the strike team, especially for a lot of those scenes and content that took yeah, place. You had them playing poker and joking around a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or they play softball and, you know, get into fights on the softball field and everything. Um, you know, I was still playing uh, hockey rec- recreationally and you know, while I was making the shield and and there'd be times where, you know, I'd be writing the shield and then I'd go on a Tuesday night at, and play a game at 1030 and, and, you know, maybe not get into a full fledged fight on the ice rink, but, you know, uh, close to a fight. <laughs> uh, and, and then you'd, you know, be undressing in the locker room afterwards, the other guys talking about, Oh, that, that, that fucker did this and blah, 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 you know? And, and, and so, so that was another inspiration was just trying to bring, um, some might call it a, a toxic, masculine um aspect that 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 wasn't really investigated on tv so that was a case where where my athletic background i think uh came in handy that's another reason i love cheer so much i i love that he was an ex-ball player and that he was like a good ball player but maybe not a great one he wasn't like a hall of famer um but he sort of lived off that fame and i always felt like there were early episodes in cheers when like fred dreyer's character the sportscaster came on um, where, where I felt that that got um, athlete culture right. I really admired that about the show early on. Hard to believe, considering who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly with your background, you knew a lot about baseball. Well, you know, you write about serial killers, and <laughs> <laughs> chances are you're not one. Your lead character I guess, too, the timing, it was really the era of the anti-hero because what your lead character, Vic Mackey, does at the end of the pilot is absolutely shocking. Uh, How did that test? 
there was some. Listen, I know the FX tested the pilot, and they shared some details of the pilot with me of the testing of the pilot, but they didn't like share the full report. Um, I was told that the pilot tested okay to good, but not great. But they felt like the show was so different that it would be difficult for it to test great. Good for them. Because the main character does shoot someone in the face uh, (laughs) at the end of the pilot episode. So they, they, they knew that that, um, but what they were looking for at that time, and we see it very prevalent now, they weren't looking for that show to be 50% of a, uh, a show that 50% of America occasionally tuned into. They wanted to be, they wanted it to be the show that three to 5% of America thought it was their absolute favorite show and would make every effort in the world to see it and would evangelize it to their friends. You know, and, and this was sort of the beginning, I would say, of the niche programming thing that, that, you know, when you came up, you know, writing the mashes and the cheerses of the world, there were three networks and it was all about getting at least a 35 share, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was all about making sure that, you know, you weren't third place uh, in a three horse race and you had to, and you couldn't offend too many people doing that. So um, it's kind of remarkable what a show like MASH and a show like Cheers were able to do in terms of the content they were to do and yet still appeal to such wide uh, audiences. But for us, we were able to say, hey, you know, most cops out there are good, but but there are some out there that are doing shit like this. And here's what that life looks like. Um, and there were people that were offended by that notion who would never watch the show based on what the content was. And FX was cool with that because there were people that, that when they watched it, they felt like they couldn't see this anywhere else. They couldn't see a show like that anywhere else. And, and, and so I was very fortunate to have that script, um, ready to hand out right when fx was ready to make that kind of programming and i also have to just give a nod i I, you know it it seems obvious um but it's just important to give um credit and honor to the sopranos because i never would have written the shield script if the sopranos didn't exist because i i don't know that i would have that i would have thought a show like the shield would be possible if i hadn't seen the success that the sopranos had and you were on FX, probably the first or one of the first made for basic cable series. It was the second. There, there was a show called Son of the Beach, which was a comedy that Howard Stern produced. That was kind of a, um, um, it was kind of a mockumentary style thing of like Baywatch. You know, it was a satire of a sort of Baywatch era show. And that's why Howard Stern never liked The Shield, because FX canceled Son of the Beach to change what it wanted to do with this, with its original programming, which was go darker and more awards baity and everything. Um, but yeah, so FX at that point had Son of the Beach on and then had like Beverly Hills Now 210 repeats and Buffy the Vampire Slayer repeats during the day. Right. I remember and MASH. When, uh, <laughs> lots MASH of MASH. Show? Yeah, <laughs> lots of things that 20th had produced. 
Um, cause, uh, yeah, they were taking from the 20th century Fox 20th television library, um, for a lot of their stuff. And I remember when I first got a call that like, Hey, um, that, that script you wrote, it was called the barn back then. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's some people interested in the barn. They want to talk to you, you know, people at FX. And I was like, do you mean Fox? No, not Fox FX. And I didn't know what FX was when I was told <laughs> that. And I had to go, Oh, that's one of these cable channels. Like, well, what's on that? And I was like, they're going to do, or they're going to talk about doing this show. This is nuts. But I didn't know. But Peter Liguori and Kevin Riley, um, with the blessing of Peter Chernin, um, were ready to kind of change what, what basic cable, uh, could be. And, and I was, you know, very fortunate again. Uh, I can point to a very fortunate, uh, series of events that led to my career. Um, they were ready to do the kind of show that I had just written. Let's talk about the casting. When you wrote the pilot, did you have a specific actor in mind? Uh, well, first I have to realize when I wrote the pilot, I never thought anyone would make it. I thought, well, this is just a script. I'm going to get paid to write and it will become my next uh sample will become my next spec script that I can use if I get fired off angel, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> uh, at that point. Uh, I didn't think I, I tend not to write with people in mind. The only thing I thought at the time was, Oh, this is like a Harrison Ford character in my mind. <laughs> I was like, okay. oh, <clears throat> this is sort of a dirty, nasty Harrison Ford was was what I thought of it. I thought it would be somebody with, you know, charisma that 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 gives you um, you know, that smile and you can't help but like him, but then he's doing these things that that aren't necessarily likable. And so and so I, I really learned an important lesson about casting when we were casting the Shield pilot, because I did have that specific like Harrison Ford thing in my mind. This has to be a classically a TV classically good looking guy you know, with the hair and everything, you know, as a bald guy, you know, I'm so jealous of people with hair. I'm looking at your hair <laughs> right now and going, you know, how have you managed the hair the whole time? You know, I was losing mine in my, you know, mid to late twenties. Um, so I had writing this... comedy. <laughs> yeah. We're tearing our hair out on the dramas, but, uh, but I was thinking, okay, it's gotta, it's gotta be this. And then as we were seeing people that kind of match that physicality, they, they weren't really the actors that that made that role sing in the audition process. And um, and it, again, another twist of good fortune for me, uh, my wife Kathy had been childhood friends with Michelle Chiklis. They had grown up in the same neighborhood of um, North Miami Beach. Florida with Michelle and and then Michelle ultimately married Michael. So occasionally Kathy and I would run into Michael and Michelle just about town. And in one case, somewhat famously in the Shield retelling, um, at a Jimboree class when we both had young kids. Mm-hmm. Um and so I was aware of Michael from that. I'd never really watched the commish, um, but I was aware of him as an actor. And and so we were seeing people audition for, for Vic Mackey and I wasn't seeing anyone that was even remotely right. Um, and, 
Deb Aquila, our casting director on the pilot, called and and oh, and the other thing is nobody wanted to audition for an FX show. Yeah, um, yeah, I get not, that too. This is you know FX doesn't make TV. We may like the script, but there's no way it's going to translate into a good show. Um, no so, one's going to see it. Yeah, no one's going to see it. So the major agencies were wouldn't even let their wouldn't submit their clients. Went, send the clients in for auditions. It was really hard. And so Deba Quill called and, and we were talking various casting things. And then she said, Oh, um, Michael Chiklis's people called. He wants to come in and read. Um, but I, I, you know, but he's not what you've described. And I think he's wrong. And so I think we should pass. And I said, Yeah, he doesn't really seem right. I go, but. Like my wife is friends with his wife, and occasionally we run into him. And some other people aren't auditioning. It kind of feels rude, like not to let him audition. So if he wants to read, why don't we let him read? Um, when I had met him, he had been heavier. Um, he was sort of in that commish body thing. What I didn't know was during the period that I'd seen him, he'd really kind of worked out. He lost weight. He really became quite chiseled. He, you know, almost had this like Bruce Willis thing. And so when he walked in the door for that audition, he was, he looked different than I remembered. He had the shaved head now. Uh, and then he gave just the world's greatest audition. And I realized, Oh, what I've been thinking of the role is not what the role is. This is the role. And I, I, I needed an actor to really embody it, to, to educate me. Another example of that where I really learned to have an open mind about casting was Claudette Wims, who was played by CCH Pounder. She had done a, a TV movie for HBO that Clark Johnson had directed, and Clark was our director on The Shield Pound. She really enjoyed working with Clark, and so her manager realized, oh, Clark's directing this new pilot. Let me read it. And she reads the script, and she realizes that there is no good role for Cece in it. But she calls up our casting people and says – Hey, this role of Charles, who's a man, why can't that be a woman? And why can't Cece play it? And that message gets passed on to me. And I go, well, there is no reason why that couldn't be a woman, I guess. What? Well, let's have her come in and read. And she was okay in her first reading, but she kind of apologized. I didn't get right. Could I come back a second time? And she came back a second time and she was just amazing. And I realized, oh, this role is supposed to be a woman. But I didn't realize that until I saw the right woman come in and, and be it. And so that was the last thing I learned very early on, is that if you get too specific about what you think the casting should be for a role, um, you are closing yourself off to what could be much better possibilities. And the good casting directors will oftentimes bring you people and say, okay, I know this isn't exactly what you're looking for, but there's something very interesting about this actor. That's right. And it's worth five minutes of your time. And, and you go, yeah, this is lightning in a bottle. I'll rewrite for this yes. actor. No, we once right. had a, a situation yeah. in casting where my partner and I would try to think of specific actors so that we were both on the same page when mm-hmm. we were writing these pilots. There was a specific actor we thought of for this role. And the actor came in and read. And the actor read it exactly the way we heard it in our head. And when he walked out, both David and I looked at each other and said, I think we can do better. 
<laughs> I my friend Dave Snell, who played Ronnie, like I said, he he was in Kansas. He was based out of Kansas City for a while before he came to LA. And he told me once he had, he had worked a lot there, and he he got a breakdown once that they were looking for a a, a, a David Reese Snell type, but they didn't call him. <laughs> and I was thought, oh. The the joy of being an actor, this archetype, but won't have ultimately get cast in the role. Well, casting is such an important part of the process because I say, I say, it's the only thing you can't fix. Yeah, yeah. Well, the directing can screw you up too, but yes, the casting is uh, the casting. Well, to give you an example of that, I just told the story about Michael coming in and auditioning. Um, what I didn't say is that a day or two before that after we had seen like the 30th bad Vic Mackey audition, I, when the actor left the room, I turned to uh, Clark Johnson, our director. And I said, you know, maybe this script isn't as good as I think it is because, you know, as I'm hearing the words, it's just, it's not like playing that well. And maybe I, what, maybe what I need to do is maybe I need to like rewrite a lot of this. Maybe, you know, maybe the problem is the writing. And then a day or two later, Michael comes in, he auditions and does the whole thing. And he leaves the room and there's like a five second pause. And then I turned to Clark and said, no, I'm a great writer. This is a great script. <laughs> no, it's true. Because when you've heard your material, your material mangled by <laughs> 30 different people. In different ways. In different they're ways. Not, they're not bad in the choices. same way. You're going, wait, I don't even understand the logic of <laughs> of that choice. And these are all, you know, established SAG actors. Oh, you know, yes. this oh, isn't you... community theater. And you're you're looking at them and ugh. plus, you know, for us, there's the added element of not funny. Good actor. <laughs> okay. Great well, look. You... Not funny. Like, I'm always amazed. Like, I, I watched a documentary once of the making of uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And famously, um, CBS didn't want any of those actors other than Mary <laughs> um, mm -hmm. in the show. And they they found these actors. Uh, Ed Asner was known for drama, not for, for comedy. Ted Knight wasn't known for, for comedy then. Gavin... Um, McLeod, yeah, wasn't known. Um, and then I think of like Leslie Nielsen's, you know, coming to fame in the airplane movies and everything. How did you, how could you figure out who the serious actors who could do? Is it just by hearing them, or, or are they just, you know, uh, it's, when you, it's when you were casting, them. would you go for the people known for comedy, or would you try to explore? Is there somebody that's great at comedy and we just don't know it yet? Uh, it's hearing it, and I also find that dramatic actors who play really interesting villains tend to be very good at comedy. I remember seeing RoboCop for the first time and seeing Kurtwood Smith. Yeah. And going, I got to work with that guy. <laughs> that guy is great. And and ultimately, we brought him in for a pilot, which which got on the air and he was extremely funny. Yeah. And people didn't didn't think that we he, had David Morse 
in in our pilot. We take them to the network, and he had a great reading. And the network president was like, God, I don't know. He's a dramatic actor, you know. He did uh, Saint Elsewhere, and one of the other executives say, I don't understand. We all laughed, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's uh, it's just that simple. I always found I was always excited when I could find a comedic actor that we could give a dramatic opportunity to. Like on the Shield, I think of Anthony Anderson, who had done like Kangaroo Jack and 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 done these sort of comedies. Um, but when we were coming up uh, with the Antoine character for season four. His name got brought up and I had a meeting with him and and he really fought for that role. And he was like, listen, you know, I'm known for these goofy comedy stuff, but like I'm a guy who grew up in South Central. Like I get this world and I get this sort of thing. Um, And we worked with him and FX was unsure. And FX made us like read him and reread him. And I think a total of three times before they finally agreed. And then he was just so great on that show. Um, and, and I think comedic actors can transition to drama better than a lot of drama actors can transition to comedy. I think it's probably true. I think it's very interesting when you can cast against type. I mean, to me, just a primary example of that is Margot Martindale in Justified. Right. (laughs) She was just such a, a wonderful villain. Well, you guys had some some great casting. Um, it's interesting when you look at supporting characters of shows, you never know what's going to happen down the line. You know, she could become the princess of England, you mm-hmm. know, or he could murder his wife and spend 40 years in prison and yeah. that's what you had with Michael Jace. Yeah, no, very tragic. Um, Were you completely shocked? Sure. How could you not be shocked? Um, I remember just being at home late one night, and um, and I was checking Twitter, and somebody in my mentions said something about Michael Jace and and killed his wife, and I. I was like, what is he talking about? And I started searching, searching, and ultimately the news came out that 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 he had shot and killed his wife. Um, and you work with an actor for seven years, and by this point, I forget what year this happened, so I don't know how many years had passed since the end of the show. Um, you know, Michael was uh, an intense guy. I never fully felt like I completely understood him, but I never expected anything like that. I never had an indication that he would be, you know, violent towards uh, someone. Um, and it's very strange when you spend years writing about crimes and crimes of passion and these sorts of things. Um, and and then um, somebody that spent a lot of time with did this. And I had, I had spoken to him maybe three, four, five months before that had happened. He had been working on a script and was interested in my thoughts and, you know, that he had written with someone and, and I read it and I got on the phone with the two of them 
And it was just, you know, like I'm sure you do when you're mentoring people, you know, people have written something and, and they're interested in your opinion. And we had a nice conversation. And, you know, and it turns out that, you know, things were going hard for him and his marriage was dissolving. And, and um, you know, I still don't fully understand the circumstances of that night and what led to it. Um but he lost control and um, and made a tragic mistake that took a mother away from his two sons. Um, I haven't spoken to him since the incident. Um, it's weird to think, you know, he's in a real prison the way that, uh, um, you know, our show portrayed other people going to prison. Um, and... So yeah, so that's it is a weird aspect when I go back and watch Shield episodes and sort of say, well, is there something I missed? Is there something I should have known to feel for his two sons, you know, who who lost both their parents in different ways, you know, yeah. because, because of one horrible night. And I think of all of the actors of the shows that I've worked on and I'm thinking who could have done that among the actors that I've worked with. And I can't think of any, but then, then I think of the writers that I've worked with. And then I, I can get with seven. So that's part one with Sean Ryan. Come back next week when we'll be talking about series finales, working with David Mamet, also Terriers, which was a fabulous show that never got its due. Uh, the Art of Showrunning, Network Politics, and a lot more. That is next week with Sean Ryan. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, Levine at Outlook.com. That is Levine at Outlook.com. That is my email address. You can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, and check out my New Yorker cartoons. So come back next week, part two, with Sean Ryan, right here on Hollywood and Levine.